ತದೇಕಂ ಸ್ಮರಾಮಸ್ತದೇಕಂ ಹಜಾಮ ತದೇಕಂ ಜಗತ್ಸಾಕ್ಷಿಪಂ ನಮ ಸದೇಕಂ ನಿಧಾನ ನಿರಾಲಂಬಮೀಶಂ ಭೋಧಿಪೋತ ಶರಣ್ಯಂ ವ್ರಜಾಮ On that alone do we meditate, that alone do we worship, to that alone the witness of the universe do we bow, to that one who is our sole eternal support, the self-existent Lord, the raft to safety across the ocean of samsara, do we come for refuge om peace 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 good morning today's title is the undivided life it's actually a very attractive title and many people have mentioned oh that sounds like a great title and i also thought it's a great title and <laughs> why is it that we we like the idea of the, of the title so much i think it's because we are intuitive intuitively drawn to that we think yes our life should be undivided and at the same time somehow we feel that right now our life is isn't quite that it's not quite undivided it's somehow scattered the undivided life suggests some some beautiful wholeness and completeness but we don't quite feel it we're maybe we're spread too thin maybe we ha- feel like we have too many commitments or that different parts of our life are not quite in sync so we want that the undivided life perhaps our minds also seem to be a little bit scattered a little bit divided maybe we have a bad habit that we know we want to kick but somehow we can't quite kick the habit or we have high ideals vedantic ideals we want to love everyone but then there's some people we just can't seem to be able to love them so we have these we in fact we make various divisions in our lives we have of course the old dichotomy of work and home there's my home and my work my family and my colleagues and then there's also my friends they're all three kind of separate groups and then there's the spiritual and the secular go to church on sunday and the rest of the week do whatever you like that <laughs> that <laughs> that's a divided life in our mind too there are divisions uh, we have uh, things we like things we dislike likes and dislike we have tendencies towards unselfishness no doubt but there are also some tendencies towards selfishness we have tendencies towards detachment and tendencies towards attachment towards enjoyment we have uh, tendencies towards yoga and tendencies towards bhoga sri ramakrishna says the mind is dispersed part of it part of it has gone to dhaka part to delhi and another part to kuch bihar <laughs> that mind is to be gathered in it must be concentrated on one object if you want 16 annas worth of cloth then you have to pay the merchant the full 16 annas yoga is not possible if there is the slightest obstacle if there is a tiny break in the telegraph wire then the news cannot be transmitted well i think one of the root causes of this uh, the way we feel that our life is not quite undivided is the materialistic world view of today the 
worldview of the dominant culture in which we live is materialistic. That means it takes matter to be ultimately real and the most important thing. It's rooted in science, of course, and although we can say majority of Americans, at least, are not atheists. A recent poll, 2012, found that only 5% of people in this country are willing to call themselves atheists. Only 5%. That's much lower, actually, than in Europe. In some European countries, it's as high as 25%. So only 5% say they're atheists, but apparently for most people, God is more like an idea. The divine is a nice idea, but it's not a reality. So this worldview espoused and propagated by our dominant cultural institutions is one based on the primacy of matter, not consciousness, and based on the idea of a separate self. Myself is separate from yourself and all the other selves. And it proffers uh, life goals of finding a mate, acquiring wealth, getting power, and enjoying as much as possible. These uh, ideals and these uh, principles which govern the worldview strengthen and stimulate and strengthen the currents of raga, dvesha, and bhaya. Raga, attachment, lust, and greed. Dvesha, aversion, hatred, and bhaya, fear. At first glance, it may not be so evident, but underneath, it's very strong. In fact, while I was trying to start working on this lecture and procrastinating, I started looking at some of the news. It's my chance to catch up on the news when I'm supposed to be working on a lecture. And uh, so I looked for a while at the news and the videos on the uh, Internet. And it's quite depressing the news websites show which stories are most popular. They have a little thing, little list, most popular, these things. And then another, on the other side, recommended for you with some titillating pictures. <laughs> and most of the stories about either murders, sex crimes, or cri other crimes, or sex. These four departments. And they're very graphic. You see all kinds of crimes in progress. You can see shootings in progress and beatings in progress, everything. So... How will we lead the undivided life if we're afraid of everything, if we're afraid of everyone? These kind of things just stimulate the fear and the greed and the lust. Now, diametrically opposite to this worldview is the Vedantic worldview, the Upanishadic worldview, the view of the ancient, the ancient rishis and the modern rishis. This worldview, this paradigm, the Vedantic paradigm, emphasizes the primacy of consciousness, not matter. The primacy of consciousness. The primacy of spirit. All beings and all things are interconnected. The individual self is not separate from other selves. It's not independent, but connected to all other selves, and connected to the Supreme Self. Ultimately, in the Advaita philosophy, non-dualism says that the separate self is an illusion. There is only one infinite consciousness, one infinite existence, consciousness, bliss, absolute. The goals of life in this worldview are dharma, Artha, Kama, and Moksha. We know them well. Life is regulated by Dharma, by righteousness. One may seek for wealth and enjoyment, but everything is to be regulated by Dharma. It means we are to live in harmony with nature, harmony with our fellow human beings and other beings. And then it offers a highest goal, a, an overarching goal beyond all the temporal things of this world that is moksha, 
freedom, ultimate freedom, realizing God, illumination, spiritual illumination. This worldview offers us this goal as the highest goal to be sought. Our life is understood as part of a greater whole in this worldview, as participation in the cosmic yajna, the cosmic sacrifice, or participation in the divine play. The divine play is going on and we are just playing in that play. So the whole life then revolves around the divine principle and unfolds, the life unfolds according to a holistic worldview that understands that all beings are manifestations of the divine and that our life is governed by certain principles. Principles, we call it it, dharma, the principles of dharma, certain laws. And finally, that life has a spiritual goal. Sri Ramakrishna and Swami Vivekananda have revived this ancient worldview for modern times. We can call it, a, the Germans have a very nice word for it. It's called, they call it Weltanschauung, a worldview, a way we look upon the world. Sri Ramakrishna and Swami Vivekananda have, have uh, revived it for us. The more we can change our worldview, adopt this kind of Vedantic worldview, and live our life in accordance with Vedantic ideals, the more we can make this Vedantic outlook really our own, the more we can live the undivided life. It is no doubt most challenging living as we do surrounded by these counter-currents that we were discussing just now. So I'd like to discuss this idea of living the undivided life from several angles especially in what seems like such an unspiritual culture, a secular culture. In this, we are, we are most likely to make this division between the spiritual and the secular. There's the spiritual part of our lives, and then there's the rest of our life, which is not spiritual, it's secular. We have to go to we work, and we have to meet our families, and that part is not spiritual. The spiritual part is when we go to the shrine in the morning, we do our meditation, or we come to the Vedanta Center, and the rest is not spiritual, just secular. Well, there's a remarkable observation made by Sister Devamata about Holy Mother. I'd just like to read what she noticed. She was describing where Holy Mother was living in Calcutta. Across the front of the second story, where the mother spent her days, there ran one large room. This was the meeting place of the household. At one end was the shrine, but there was no need of a dividing line, because there was none in the lives of those who sat in that upper chamber. The Lord was their accustomed companion, and it was natural to them to pass all the hours of day and night at his feet. When I first read this passage, it really struck me. The Holy Mother's bedroom was also the shrine room. She used to live in the shrine room. She used to sleep there. And Radhu would sleep there also, and she would meet the devotees there. Everything would happen in the shrine room. And the way Devamata remarks, there was no need of a dividing line. There was no line in the room that, well, this is the part that's the shrine and this part is not, not the shrine. There was no need of a dividing line because there was none in the lives of those who sat there. There was no divi- division in their lives, so there was no need of a division outside. There was no unholy part of the room, no sacred and secular parts. I don't mean that we should start sleeping in the temple, uh, but we can learn a lot from the mother. We can learn about the un- living the undivided life by looking at her life. The whole life is unified by being utterly centered in God. The separation between the sacred and the secular is bridged by seeing all as sacred. The separation that we feel between ourselves and others is bridged if we can learn to see that no one is a stranger, as Mother did. 
The mother's method was to see all as her own children. This was an undivided life centered around Sri Ramakrishna. Everything rotated around him. And we feel in mother's life a wonderful simplicity, a refreshing ease resulting from this total dedication. One of the mother's biographers, Swami Saradeshananda, was an intimate attendant of the mother. Gopesh Maharaj, he was called, and some of you probably met him. I was not so lucky. He wrote a beautiful book called The Mother as I Saw Her. And he writes about this compartmentalizing tendency. He writes, We often make a hard and fast distinction between our spiritual life and our worldly activities, dividing them into two watertight compartments. The consequence is that we often feel our spiritual practice as something unnatural to us, as something forced into our life, which we identify with our worldly activities. So we identify our life with worldly activities, with our jobs and our families and all that. And the spiritual part, well, that's kind of added in. It's kind of extra. It's uh, another category in our life. And then, if that's the way it is, then we have a divided life. We won't be able to go deep in meditation. We won't be able to go forward in spiritual life. It will be unnatural to us, forced into our life. Swami Vivekananda often joked about this. He would say, religion is only one of the many necessities in life. My lady has many things in her parlor, and it is the fashion nowadays to have a Japanese vase, and she must procure it. It does not look well to be without it. So my lady or my gentleman has many other occupations in life, and also a little bit of religion must come in to complete it. Consequently, he or she has a little religion. For Holy Mother, spiritual life was utterly natural because it was the very first thing and the last thing and the only thing. Everything else unfolded in the light of the Spirit, in the light of that uh, spiritual life that she led. Swami Saradeshananda continues in this passage. Not to speak of the Holy Mother, even in the lives of her disciples living near her, this compartmentalization of life and the consequent development of a feeling of dichotomy between the spiritual and the secular did not arise. Through her love and sweetness, there would grow naturally in these disciples traits like proficiency in work, attachment to truth, forbearance, love and affection, eagerness to serve others, and so on. As regards faith in God and the practice of his worship, that was one's very life and was as spontaneous as breathing. How beautiful that the spiritual life, the faith and worship, that is as spontaneous as breathing. We can't live without breathing. If our breathing stops, that's we have just a few, a few minutes before life uh, departs the body. It's utterly essential to life. And, and yet it's also utterly natural. We don't even have to think about it. So in that way, the faith and worship in these disciples of the mother, it was like breathing. It was just a, a, an inseparable part of their lives. Sri Ramakrishna used to say, First God and then the world. First God and then the world. If you know one, you know all. If you put 50 zeros after a one, you have a large sum. But erase the one and nothing remains. It is the one that makes the many. First one, then many. First God, then his creatures and the world. It's an interesting example because we know that Sri Ramakrishna couldn't do mathematics. He couldn't do arithmetic. He, he could do a little addition, but subtraction was impossible and division even more out of the question. And yet, 
he could give this example, which is a, a, an advanced mathematical concept, the concept of zeros, and if you put a one in front of it, you put, have 50 zeros with a one in the front of it, you have a very big number. What would that number be? Someone can find out the name for us. But you erase the one and you've got zero, that's all. So this seems to me to be the key to living the undivided life. Letting the whole life unfold with the divine at the center. Dedication to the divine reality, God, spirit, is what ties the disparate parts of our lives together, brings them together. And if we can add a little yearning to it, then we find really that yearning will pull everything into one stream. When we really yearn for God, then the whole mind, the whole life starts to flow towards the divine. Then we don't need to, then every other part of our life also will naturally get pulled into that current and we'll find a way to bring our work, our family, our struggles, our trials, we'll bring it all into spiritual life. Gopesh Maharaj Swami Saradeshananda describes how the mother's disciples would develop a particular attitude towards life which reflects this understanding of the primacy of the spirit. As regards faith in God and the practice of his worship, that was one's very life and was as spontaneous as breathing. The faith that gradually became firm in their hearts was this. There is one all-pervading, all-compassionate Lord who is the Shakti, the power behind all the functions of the world like creation, preservation, and destruction. He is present everywhere, inside and outside. The world is the Lord's. He created it for his own play. We are mere pawns in the game. Wherever he keeps us, and in whatever way he does so, we have to abide by it contentedly. We suffer as a result of our own actions. It is unfair to blame anybody else for it. We have to surrender ourselves completely to the Lord with faith and devotion, serve others to the best of our capacity, and never be a source of sorrow to anybody. Teachings like these the mother used to impart to her children in a manner that they absorbed them in their hearts unknowingly, without any formal instruction. So this is the worldview, the Weltan Shaum, which the mother cultivated in the hearts of her children, without them even being aware of it. I think this is important. It's important to cultivate a worldview, to cultivate such a a philosophy of life, we can call it, a philosophy of life. If we don't do it consciously, then unconsciously it will be formed. And if it's formed unconsciously, it will be formed primarily by the currents of the culture in which we live. And this philosophy of life deeply influences our experience of the world and of how we live our life. There are, I think, several approaches possible, several different philosophies of life. Some of them almost seem opposite to each other. The attitude described by Gopesh Maharaj just now is one of utter surrender, understanding everything as the will of the divine, like a baby kitten satisfied wherever its mother places it, on the master's bed or in the ash heap, all it knows is, my mother has placed me here, and it's content. Looking on oneself as a pawn in the Lord's game. The, the Lord is playing chess, and I'm just a pawn where he places me. That's where I'll be. This is the leela, the idea of leela, the idea of play, that the, the creation, this universe, is just the divine play unfolding. And we are just players in the play. We are play, playing with the mother. We are play fellows of the Lord. 
again, we can feel that in this divine play, we are servants. We are servants of the Lord. And if we go a little deeper, maybe we can feel we become instruments of the Lord. Then there's the idea of the cosmic yajna, the cosmic sacrifice going on. We can see that in the whole universe, everything is being sacrificed. All life comes to an end. Even the suns and the moons come to an end. Everything is like a grand sacrifice and we, all our actions are also offered into this sacrifice. Our whole life becomes offered into the wheel of sacrifice, the yajna chakra as the Gita calls it. And finally, there's the attitude of the jnani, the attitude of knowledge. All the universe is the manifestation of prakriti, of nature, of the gunas. I am the Atman, the ever-pure self. I am separate from it. I am merely the witness. I am merely witnessing the actions of prakriti, even whatever actions are being done by my body and my mind. These are just the play of the gunas, the gunas acting. I am separate from them. I remain as the witness. This is also a kind of philosophy of life. Sri Ramakrishna has some wonderful stories about these different attitudes. I'd like to read out one of my favorites, which most of you, I'm sure, know well. It's the story of the will of Rama. This is the idea of utter surrender, that everything that happens is the will of the divine. And for that reason, it, it's good, because the Lord has willed it so. Sri Ramakrishna was speaking with the devotees on the 26th of October, 1884. And he says, God has put you in the world. What can you do about it? Resign everything to him. Surrender yourself at his feet. Then there will be no more confusion. Then you will realize that it is God who does everything. All depends on the will of Rama. And a devotee asked him, What is that story about the will of Rama? Probably the devotee knew very well, but he also wanted to hear it from the master's lips. So Sri Ramakrishna continued, In a certain village there lived a weaver. He was a very pious man. Everyone trusted him and loved him. He used to sell his goods in the marketplace. When a customer asked him the price of a piece of cloth, the weaver would say, By the will of Rama, the price of the yarn is one rupee, and the labor four annas. By the will of Rama, the profit is two annas. The price of the cloth, by the will of Rama, is one rupee and six annas. Such was the people's faith in the weaver that the customer would at once pay the price and take the cloth. This is very unusual in India, as you know. You, every transaction has to be accompanied by five or ten minutes of haggling and arguing, and finally, very grudgingly, the customer will fork over the money. So the weaver was a real devotee of God, Sri Ramakrishna continues. After finishing his supper in the evening, he would spend long hours in the worship hall meditating on God and chanting his name and glories. Now, late one night, the weaver couldn't get to sleep. He was sitting in the worship hall, smoking now and then, when a band of robbers happened to pass that way. They wanted a man to carry their goods and said to the weaver, Come with us. So saying, they led him off by the hand. After committing a robbery in a house, they put a load of things on the weaver's head, commanding him to carry them. Suddenly, the police arrived, and the robbers ran away. But the weaver, with his load, was arrested. He was kept in the lock-up for the night. Next day, he was brought before the magistrate for trial. The villagers learned what had happened and came to court. They said to the magistrate, your honor, this man could never commit a robbery. Thereupon, the magistrate asked the weaver to make his statement. The weaver said, Your honor, by the will of Rama, I finished my meal at night. Then, by the will of Rama, I was sitting in the worship hall. 
It was quite late at night by the will of Rama. By the will of Rama, I had been thinking of God and chanting his name and glories, when, by the will of Rama, a band of robbers passed that way. By the will of Rama, they dragged me with them. By the will of Rama, they committed a robbery in a house, and, by the will of Rama, they put a load on my head. Just then, by the will of Rama, the police arrived, and, by the will of Rama, I was arrested. Then, by the will of Rama, the police kept me in the lockup for the night. And this morning, by the will of Rama, I have been brought before your honor. The magistrate realized that the weaver was a pious man and ordered his release. On his way home, the weaver said to his friends, By the will of Rama, I have been released. <laughs> An amazing story, the story of the will of Rama. Delightful and this constant repetition of this phrase, by the will of Rama, by the will of Rama, by the will of Rama. Really, the man felt that everything happens by the will of Rama. Every little thing happens by the will of Rama. It reminds us of Sri Ramakrishna. There's the incident when uh, Ridoy was asked to leave the temple complex at Dakshineshwar. He had uh, done uh, some mistake and he was ordered to leave. And when the message was delivered, the messenger also told Sri Ramakrishna, you have to go. Without any hesitation, without any discussion, without any complaining, Sri Ramakrishna, he, was, he just put his towel over his shoulder and he was going out towards the gate, walking out towards the temple gate, completely unperturbed, completely at ease. It was the will of the mother then. No problem, mother will take care where, wherever I end up, whatever the next thing is. Then Trilokya, who was the um, proprietor of the temple, he saw Sri Ramakrishna heading towards the gate and he ran out and said, no, no, we didn't ask you to leave, you, you are to stay. Then, equally unperturbed, he turned back around and went back to his room. So this is the will of Rama, this utter surrender to the divine. Swami Vivekananda liked very much the idea of the Leela, the divine play. An interesting uh, conversation took place in Camp Taylor in north of San Francisco in May of 1900. Uh, Mrs. Hansbro has recorded this uh, incident. There were a number of people, men and women, devotees of Swamiji, who went camping for a couple of weeks in a kind of rustic camp and they had to cook outside on a big wood stove and they had tents and the tents would leak at night when it rained and all of that. So it was a kind of adventure and a great uh, blessing for those devotees to spend two weeks in the woods with Swami Vivekananda. So one day, as this reminiscence reads, one day after the meditation in Miss Bell's tent, Miss Bell remarked, this world is an old schoolhouse where we come to learn our lessons. Who told you that? Swami Vivekananda demanded. She could not remember. Well, I don't think so, he declared. I think this world is a circus ring in which we are the clowns tumbling. Why do we tumble, Swami? Miss Bell asked. Because we like to tumble, was his answer. When we get tired, we will quit. This idea that the world is a schoolhouse, a school, and we come to learn our lessons, it's a quite a prevalent idea. We hear it quite often. And it, it's an appealing idea, to me at least. But evidently Swamiji did not like this idea at all. He didn't, didn't see it that way at all. He understood that this is a circus. And we've just come to tumble. We're the clowns tumbling. One beautiful letter he wrote to Francis Leggett in 1896. I won't read out the whole letter, but a portion of the letter, he talks about this play. I have had so much of kindness and love here, and that love infinite that brought me into being has guarded every one of my actions, good or bad. Don't be frightened. For what am I? What was I ever but a tool in his hands? for whose service I have given up everything, my beloved ones, my joys, my life. He is my playful darling. I am his playfellow. 
There is neither rhyme nor reason in the universe. What reason binds him? He, the playful one, is playing these tears and laughters over all parts of the play. Great fun, great fun, as Joe says. It is a funny world, and the funniest chap you ever saw is he, the beloved infinite. Fun, is it not? Brotherhood or playmatehood, a school of romping children let out to play in this playground of the world, isn't it? Whom to praise, whom to blame, it is all his play. Such a sweet attitude, very high attitude to be able to take all his play. And notice, tears too are part of the play. He, the playful one, is playing these tears and laughters. So even the tears are a part of the play. And here Swamiji likens himself to a tool in the hands of the Lord for whose service he has dedicated his life. In this kind of attitude, all the people we meet are our playmates in this divine lila. Swamiji says in another place, Whatever comes to you is but the Lord, the Eternal, the Blessed One, appearing to us in various forms as our father and mother and friend and child. They are our own soul playing with us. Practical, this is from Practical Vedanta. This is the experience of Advaita in manifestation. All our, all the people we meet, they are our own soul playing with us. Sometimes Swamiji likened the world also to a gymnasium. The world is a grand moral gymnasium wherein we all have to take exercise so as to become stronger and stronger spiritually. And about uh, philanthropy, he says, God has not fallen into a ditch for you and me to help him out by building a hospital or something of that sort. He allows you to work. He allows you to exercise your muscles in this great gymnasium, not in order to help him, but that you may help yourself. So these two uh, Swamiji had. When some, I think gymnasium was one attitude which he suggested to others, but his own attitude was actually that it's simply a circus, simply a play. Then again, uh, Swamiji also could be in the mood of the witness, that he is simply the witness seeing the whole world pass before him. He makes an interesting comment about it. He says, people cannot understand how the witness can enjoy. Oh, they say, you Hindus have become quite questioned and good for nothing through this doctrine that you are witnesses. First of all, it is only the witness that can enjoy. If there is a wrestling match, who enjoys it? Those who take part in it or those who are looking on, the outsiders? The more and more you are the witness of anything in life, the more you enjoy it. And this is Ananda. And therefore, infinite bliss can only be yours when you have become the witness of this universe. Then alone you are a Mukta Purusha. It is the witness alone that can work without any desire, without any idea of going to heaven, without any idea of blame, without any idea of praise. The witness alone enjoys and none else. He also gives the example of a, an auction and a painting being sold and says, who enjoys the picture, the seller or the seer? The seller is busy with his accounts, computing what his gain will be, how much profit he will realize on the picture. His brain is full of that. He is looking at the hammer and watching the bids. He is intent on hearing how fast the bids are rising. That man is enjoying the picture who has gone there without any intention of buying or selling. He looks at the picture and enjoys it. So this whole universe is a picture. And when these desires have vanished, 
men will enjoy the world. And then this buying and selling and these foolish ideas of possession will be ended. The moneylender gone, the buyer gone, the seller gone. This world remains the picture, a beautiful painting. So how to do it is the, really the, the big question. <laughs> how to do it. It's not so easy as it sounds. And Swami Vivekananda wouldn't say that it is easy. He admits that it's tough. He says, it is very easy to talk. From my childhood I have heard of seeing God everywhere and in everything, and then I can really enjoy the world. But as soon as I mix with the world and get a few blows from it, the idea vanishes. This is Swamiji talking. I am walking in a street thinking that God is in every man, and a strong man comes along and gives me a push, and I fall flat on the footpath. Then I rise up quickly with a clenched fist, and the blood has rushed to my head, and the reflection goes. Immediately I have become mad. Everything is forgotten. Instead of encountering God, I see the devil. Likewise, we have the great intention to see God in everyone in, in the morning. And then we go to work and have a quarrel with our boss. Or we come home and have a quarrel with our mother-in-law. And out it goes. <laughs> we may not raise our fist, but the blood goes to the head. <laughs> Swamiji says, if, if such is the case, what is the use of teaching all these things? There is the greatest use. The use is this, that perseverance will finally conquer. Nothing can be done in a day. We discussed, I think, last time, the, three P, the triple P's, patience, purity, and perseverance. This is Swamiji's formula for success in anything. Purity, patience, and perseverance. Another way we can look on life, another aspect of a philosophy of life, is to look on life as a yoga. The life is, the whole life is a yoga. The whole life is a, a striving to attain to yoga, to union with the divine. And often we talk about the four yogas. We have the four different yogas. Mm. Now, the danger is we don't want to compartmentalize our different spiritual practices. We don't want to say, well, I'm, this is karma yoga, bhakti yoga is not for me, I do karma yoga and these things, or I, now is the time for my karma yoga, now is the time for my bhakti yoga. It's, it may be wiser to look upon them all as, as different aspects of one yoga, one, the yoga of our life. As applied to the different aspects of our being. And they're so much supporting each other, they're so interrelated that sometimes for convenience sake, as it were, we speak of them as separate disciplines, but actually they are all part of our spiritual life, part of our sadhana. We can define sadhana, a beautiful uh, definition of sadhana could be the flow of one's whole life towards a spiritual ideal. Often we translate sadhana as spiritual practices. Here we can imagine sadhana as meaning the flow of one's whole life towards a spiritual ideal. So bhakti yoga is that aspect of our, our striving that uh, strives to incorporate our emotions into our sadhana, inc bring our emotions into that, mm, into that flow, that flow of our whole life. The emotions will flow in, in that flow, and that is to love the Lord, to love God. Then when we're, we have to work, we have to be active, well, we have to incorporate our actions also in that flow. That's our karma yoga. We might do it in stages. At first, we offer our works to God. Well, then again, that's part of devotion also. That's part of our bhakti. We offer our works to God. As we go a little further, we find that we are working to please God. We don't have to offer all the time because God is always in mind and we're working simply to please God. And we 
go a little further and we feel that we're actually an instrument. We're a tool in God's hands. We're an instrument of the Lord. It's, we start as work and worship. Then we begin to do work as worship. And finally we find that work is worship. Work and worship. Work as worship. Work is worship. We want to bring our thinking into the stream as well. We want to bring our intellectual powers into the, this flow of our life towards the divine. So we need what we call jnana yoga. We need to, we can cultivate the conviction that yes, Brahman is what the sages say, what the ancient sages say in the Upanishads and what the modern sages say in the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna and the complete works of Swami Vivekananda. It's true. Brahman is, God is, spirit is, I am spirit. This must be true. Cultivate that conviction. And then we need a rudder for all of this. We need to keep our mental instrument on an even keel. So we practice meditation, the Raja Yoga. This is the rudder. Three things are necessary for a bird to fly, says Swamiji. The two wings and the tail as a rudder for steering. Jnana, knowledge, is the one wing. Bhakti, love, is the other. And yoga is the tail that keeps up the balance. So the contemplative life allows us gradually to go deeper. Gives us, first of all, glimpses into the workings of our own mind and gradually drives the Vedantic ideas deep, deep into the mind. And ultimately, we get the supersensuous experience in meditation. In the uh, introduction to the complete works of Swami Vivekananda, Sister Nivedita writes beautifully about uh, this about this harmonizing teachings of Swami Vivekananda. She writes, If the many and the one be indeed the same reality, then it is not all modes of worship alone, but equally all modes of work, all modes of struggle, all modes of creation, which are paths of realization. No distinction henceforth between sacred and secular. To labor is to pray, to conquer is to renounce. Life is itself religion. To have and to hold is as stern a trust as to quit and to avoid. This is the realization which makes Vivekananda the great preacher of karma, not as divorced from, but as expressing jnana and bhakti. To him, the workshop, the study, the farmyard, and the field are as true and fit scenes for the meeting of God with man as the cell of the monk or the door of the temple. To him there is no difference between service of man and worship of God, between manliness and faith, between true righteousness and spirituality. A beautiful description by one of Swamiji's greatest interpreters, Sister Nivedita, no distinction henceforth between sacred and secular. I'd like to close with, uh, again, Swami Vivekananda and uh, his little bit of talk he gave about the Isha Upanishad. Isha Upanishad is one of the oldest Upanishads and the very first line is very significant. Isha Vasamidam Sarvam Whatever exists in this universe is to be covered with the Lord. See all as God. This is the teaching of the Isha Upanishad, the very first line. And when we can do that, then our life will clearly be an undivided life because we see that everything is the Lord. So I'll read what Swami Vivekananda says about it. 
Here I can only lay before you what the Vedanta seeks to teach, and that is the deification of the world. The Vedanta does not in reality denounce the world. The ideal of renunciation nowhere attains such a height as in the teachings of the Vedanta. But, at the same time, dry, suicidal advice is not intended. It really means deification of the world, giving up the world as we think of it, as we know it, as it appears to us, and to know what it really is. Deify it. It is God alone. We read at the commencement of one of the oldest of the Upanishads, whatever exists in this universe is to be covered with the Lord. We have to cover everything with the Lord himself, not by a false sort of optimism, not by blinding our eyes to the evil, but by really seeing God in everything. Thus we have to give up the world. And when the world is given up, what remains? God. What is meant? You can have your wife. It does not mean that you are to abandon her, but that you are to see God in the wife. Give up your children. What does that mean? To turn them out of doors as some human brutes do in every country? Certainly not. That is diabolism. It is not religion. But see God in your children. So in everything, in life and in death, in happiness and in misery, the Lord is equally present. The whole world is full of the Lord. Open your eyes and see him. Om Tvameva Mata Chapita Tvameva Tvameva Bandhusya Sakha Tvameva Tvameva Vidyadravinam Tvameva Tvameva Sarvam Mama Deva Deva Kāyena vācā mana sendriyerva buddhyātmanāvā prakṛte svabhāvāt karomi yadyat sakalam parasmai nārāyanāyeti samarpayāmi Om shānti 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 Thou art my mother, my father art thou. Thou art my friend, my companion art thou. Thou art my knowledge, my wealth art thou. Thou art my all in all, O God of gods. Whatever we do, through our body, speech, mind, senses, intellect, soul, or through innate natural tendencies, all that we dedicate as an offering to the Supreme Lord. Om peace, peace, peace.